0: This episode of the trial contains strong language and references to mental health. When did the relationship with Mr McGrath change?
1: It may have been the week after I moved into the mental became intimate. He said, you could be my soul mate, who knows? And then he said, I've, he said, I've fancied you for years, but we've never acted on it.
0: When he told you that he'd fancied you for years? How
1: did you feel? I knew that we both—I'll use the word fancy—but he was a good-looking man, and he was very kind, and we just—we got on so well. um Just wish he was still here.
2: <laughs> From Stuff, this is the trial. I'm Michael Wright. In May 2017, Michael McGrath, a 49-year-old builder from Christchurch, disappeared almost without trace. His longtime friend, David Benbow, was later arrested and charged with his murder. Benbow pleaded not guilty and in early 2023 stood trial. Good morning members of the jury. For nearly two months, reporters from the press newsroom in Christchurch were at court every day Over this series, you'll hear in detail all of the key evidence in this case, from the witnesses and the lawyers directly, although some recordings have been edited slightly for time and clarity. We've made this podcast in real time, so we've followed the strict rules around court reporting. Like any defendant, David Benbow is innocent until proven guilty, and we're required to report both sides of this case, the prosecution and the defence, fairly and accurately. In the first episode of the trial, you heard about the alleged crime, victim and perpetrator, how the prosecution claimed David Benbow killed Michael McGrath and covered his tracks, and how the defense dismissed the case as circumstantial and compromised by investigators' immediate fixation on Benbow as the murderer. In this episode, we're going to explore the motive in this case, as in the prosecution's argument for why David Benbow killed Michael McGrath. Remember, at the time McGrath disappeared in May 2017, he had just started seeing Joanna Green, Benbow's ex-partner. That was Green you heard at the top of the episode, telling Benbow's trial how she and McGrath felt about each other. We're required by a court order to distort her voice. Benbow and Green had split only a couple of months before she and McGrath got together, and in late April 2017, Benbow found out they were an item. This, the Crown claimed, was the trigger. Here's Prosecutor Claire Bocher.
0: The Crown case is that Mr. Bimbo's anger became focused on Mr. McGrath. Mr. Michael McGrath could end up with everything Mr. Bimbo had lost. Mr. Bimbo betrayed his real feelings, the Crown says, when he told he would like to annihilate Mike. The Crown says... He then made a plan to do just that. Annihilate. Wipe from the face of the earth. Obliterate.
2: That bleep was the name of a counsellor Benbow made that annihilate comment to. Her identity is suppressed. We'll get to all that later in this episode. First, though, we need to tell you about how things got to that point. How the relationship of David Benbow and Joanna Green found it how it was supplanted by a messy love triangle involving Michael McGrath, and how, according to The Crown, all of that spiralled terribly out of control. Joanna Green met David Benbow in the late 1990s through her sister, Tony Green, and Tony's then-husband, Paul Flores. Flores and Benbow were friends. Joanna Green was living in Invercargill at the time, and she and Benbow dated long distance for about a year before he asked her to move back to Christchurch. They built a comfortable life together. Benbow was a technician for lines company Chorus. Green worked as a nurse until 2009, and their two daughters were born soon after. By 2017, the girls were five and seven years old. Benbow and Green owned three properties around Christchurch mortgage-free, worth nearly $2 million. The trial heard that the family home had been rebuilt in 2016, after being badly damaged in the Christchurch earthquakes. Benbow had fought their insurers to get a rebuild instead of repairs. In court, their relationship was cast as more domestic contentment than heady romance. Benbow wasn't exactly a talk-about-your-feelings guy, Green said, but he was a hard worker and a dedicated dad to their two daughters.
3: He loved his kids. Didn't he? You knew that. Yes, he did love his kids. And he'd take the kids to the school playground at the weekends? We both would, yes. Take them to the pool? We'd both take them to the pool. Take them to the library?
2: Yes. That was Green being cross-examined by defence lawyer Kathy Basier. Remember, we're required by a court order to distort her voice. Green gave more evidence than any other witness in this trial. She was on the stand for more than two days. A lot of the evidence around the love triangle, essentially the Crown's motive for murder, came from her. She had to talk a lot about the breakdown of her relationship with Benbow, which she described as toxic, and then getting together with McGrath. It was hard work. The defense heavily challenged Green's toxicity claim and her characterization of Benbo as controlling and emotionally distant. The starting point for Green in explaining all of this was that Benbo was just hard work to be with.
1: David was very negative in his work. His work he said, well, he was a very, very good worker, but complained a lot, was very negative, yep and he'd come home and bring that
2: home. The other big sticking point for Green was money. This, she said, was where Benbo was at his most controlling. He limited her access to their accounts and moved money around without telling her.
1: Um, all of it was under David's name, so he'd... I had an account, he'd put money into my account, take it out, put it into other accounts, he set up accounts for girls. I had no I had no control over, it. I didn't even have access to the bank accounts on the computer. Our family came second to money. Our family came second to work. Our family came second to a lot of things that should have we should have come first.
2: These issues, Green said, came to a head in February 2017. She wrote down how she was feeling, then had a meeting with Banbo.
1: I explained how I felt, and um, he dismissed my comments. Must have been her, dismissed my comments. What do you mean by that?
2: That's Claire Bocher, the prosecutor, asking the question.
1: He said it was trivial the things that I had mentioned, which were not trivial at all in my mind. What happened after that? Um then Dave would ring our friends and they came for a like a intervention. There was a stick passed around and people could talk. Um but I'd already made up my mind I was just, yeah. People people didn't see what was going on behind the scenes. It was all very well passing the stick around but um what you see isn't what you get. Do you recall anything that
0: Mr. Bimbo said specifically at that meeting?
1: He did bring up um that I hadn't tried hard enough and that, you know, we should make it work and yeah. How did you feel about
0: that?
1: I tried my hardest. I was bringing up two children. I was very unhappy very unfulfilled in my relationship. Did
0: your own happiness manifest itself into any particular behaviour at the time? Yes, I um,
1: I was drinking a lot.
2: After the meeting, the one with the talking stick, Green said she confided in Michael McGrath. They'd always been close, she said, and McGrath had been spending a bit of time at their place that summer, building them a new veranda.
1: I burst into tears yep I just said I couldn't do it anymore um and he he would just listened to me for an hour
0: what happened at the end of your conversation
1: he stood up to go and I stood up and he kissed me on the forehead and he said I think I think a lot of you and I said I know I think a lot of you too
2: The next day, Green's birthday, she asked Benbo to move out. He refused, she said.
1: I came home and there was a single bed in the, like, the kids' playroom, so it was, wasn't going anywhere. Are you why? No, we didn't really communicate after that at all.
2: Green consulted a lawyer.
1: I rang her, made an appointment, went and saw her, explained... And on her advice, she said, um, get the children and leave. Take their belongings and and leave.
2: So that's what she did. She told McGrath, who offered to help. I'll do anything for you, he said, bar rob a bank. On March the 3rd, 2017, while Benbo was out, Green took the girls and left. McGrath hauled the heavy stuff, beds and other furniture with a trailer while Green and another friend filled boxes. There were security cameras on the property. The roads around it were a bit of a boy racer hangout, but Green turned them off while they packed. Didn't want Benbo being able to replay the scene later, she said. All afternoon, McGrath had been ferrying most of the big stuff back to his place, and on the last trip, Green rode with him. As they left, she made a joke about how with the CCTV turned off, maybe they could let loose. I said to Mike we
1: should have a snog right at the end of the driveway. Just, we never did.
2: Green was clear in court that the snog comment was just a joke. She and McGrath never got together until after she left Banbo, a few weeks after this date. We'll get to that soon, because there was one more thing she did that day after she left. She called the police. Despite Benbow not being there, despite Green later admitting he had never been violent or threatening during their relationship, she felt that she should.
1: I had no idea how he would react, and I was just covering my bases, um, to cover my bases and have a record that I had lodged my concerns that it was a toxic relationship and I just, if there was any fallout, I could go back
2: to that. That's Joanna Green's version of the breakdown of her relationship with David Benbow. The defence spent a long time interrogating it. Green was a witness for the prosecution, but she spent about twice as long being cross-examined. Defence counsel Kathy Bazier made a two-pronged attack. The first was challenging Green's claim that the relationship was toxic. Benbo was a hard worker and a good provider, she put to Green, and far from the only guy who didn't like talking about his feelings.
3: He was more of a typical Kiwi bloke. Which is what? That's hard to define. Yeah, it is hard working, likes sports, not good talking about his feelings.
1: Definitely not good talking about his feelings or uh, other people's.
3: And you would agree that before you had children, he worked longer hours and earned more money than you? That would be correct. But despite that, he always had the houses in joint names
1: with you? Yes, they were always in joint names.
3: He paid all the bills to do with the houses from his wages... (coughs)
1: All the bills? Yes. Phone, uh, telephone, power. They were all under his name, yes.
2: Bazir hammered this point, that while Benbo was working and his wages were paying the family's bills, Green had plenty of access to money. For groceries, petrol, anything the kids needed, any shopping for herself, anything.
3: Well, isn't it true that the ATM card was always left at home for you to use? Yes. And so if you needed money to buy things at the op shop, you would just withdraw cash at the ATM machine, wouldn't you? Yes, at times I would.
2: Control over the family finances was a matter of perception, the defence said. Benbo took the lead on money matters because someone had to. He was the one who organised cell phone plans for the two of them. Green could have got a better plan, like the one Benbo had, but never tried to. Benbo set up a KiwiSaver account for Green and paid into it so she'd get the maximum government contribution. He handled all their EQC and insurance claims for earthquake damage to the three properties they owned. And he managed a term deposit that had nearly $200,000 in it. All of this, the defence said, Green could have had a bigger part in, but she chose not to.
3: Miss Green, you're an intelligent woman. If you had wanted to be involved with the finances more, you could have.
1: No, I could not have.
3: You told us on Friday that you didn't know anything about the term deposits. He
1: took me in and in an account, transferred money into that account. My accountant told me what to tell the people at the teller, what number to put in. I was uh, under pressure to do what he wanted with money in bank accounts.
3: That's simply not true, is it?
1: It is true.
2: This combative tone was pretty much how Green's entire cross-examination went. It was a tense day and a half of testimony. The defence challenged and countered just about every point she had raised about her toxic relationship with Benbo, even the final act of that relationship. When she packed up and left, she didn't leave a note, she didn't ring or text Benbo, she called the police.
3: You were intending to provoke a reaction from him, weren't you? That is not true. And if he had reacted in any negative way, you had your bases covered because you'd already rung the police.
1: I did not know this man anymore. I did not know how he was going to react. I was in a relationship I needed to get out of for myself and my children, and I did that. And I did that proudly.
0: An incredible podcast, brilliantly put together and narrated.
4: The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. So the toxicity
2: or otherwise of Green and Benbo's relationship was one way the defence challenged Green. The other was Green's drinking.
3: You'd agree you'd drunk too much and fallen asleep? I had had
1: too much to drink that night.
3: Yeah. The kids were in bed. Yes, I'd put them to bed. David had gone for a walk. Hadn't Dave put them to bed because you were so drunk? <laughs> no. Dave was out for a walk. And you've accepted you were really drunk. I don't,
1: yeah, okay. But you accept- I, I have been intoxicated probably three times during my 17 year uh, relationship with this man. So keep going, bring it on.
2: That was just the start of it. The defense did, indeed, bring it on.
3: For example, on the 4th of May, you text a friend, spilt my glass on of the gin of May, um, um, me drinking gin to, to the, to the same sister. person. Cool, I'll get stuck into gin when he you dropped. on the 13th. Lol, booze, hag. May, have I'm giving the gin bottle a May. hug. May, sorry, I missed this Apologies one. Apologies if incoherent when you... find you have
1: it's, it's... Yeah, okay. It, yeah, okay. Snippets of conversations I've had with my friends.
2: Green readily admitted she was drinking more towards the end of the relationship, when things were deteriorating. But she bristled at the defence claims that this made her unreliable and perhaps not a great partner herself sometimes.
3: Do you agree when you're drinking you can get argumentative? I can. You'd agree even when you weren't drinking, you would criticise Mr Bembo if he did something that you didn't like? No, I, I disagree with that. Do you recall being at family events and being drunk and slapping Dave across the face?
1: I have never slapped him across the face. I have pushed him
3: once. If Mr. Flores comes and gives evidence and says that I have seen Joe slap David across the face a few times when she was drunk. oh Well, he can come and say that.
1: That's his word against
2: mine. Mr. Flores is Paul Flores, Tony Green's former husband and Joanna Green's former brother-in-law. Here's what he came and said. And it's worth noting here that witnesses aren't allowed to listen to the evidence of any other witnesses who testified before them at a trial. Joanna Green appeared before Paul Flores, so he didn't hear what she said.
3: How would you describe Jo Green when she's drunk? Oh, yeah, it's not the police.
5: It's not nice, is it? can get a bit nasty and...
3: She can get really nasty and aggressive when she's drunk, mm,
5: can't
0: I she? No, she can do.
3: And you've oh. seen that mm-hmm. on more than one occasion. Oh, yes. You've seen Joe Green slap Mr. Bembo across the face, haven't you? When yes, I well, have. Yeah. On more than one occasion. hmm And on those occasions, Mr. Bembo just walked away, didn't he?
0: Oh, no, he never retaliated.
2: The defence focused in particular on Christmas Day 2016. Bembo's sister was visiting from Australia and, with Benbo's mother, was planning to spend part of the day with Green and Benbo. Their new house, an earthquake rebuilt, was newly finished, and they just moved in.
3: You were drinking that day, weren't you? Alcohol, yes. So, sister had come from Australia. She's going to be giving evidence that Mr Benbow was proud of the new house and proud of his new prison officer's uniform And he had taken her into the walk-in wardrobe to show it to him. Right. And she says, you came storming into the bedroom and said, (coughs) what the hell are you doing in here? I don't recall that. She says that you were constantly niggling and nitpicking at Dave all day.
1: That's not true either.
3: Joe was at his heels the whole day. Can you call that?
1: At his heels, what do you mean by at his heels all day?
3: Well, she says he was washing dishes and clearing up plates from Christmas lunch and nothing he did seemed to please her. That's her view. I disagree with that.
2: Even Tony Green, Joanna's sister, told the court that while Green despaired at Benbo's negativity, she could be hard work herself. By court order, we've distorted Tony's voice here too.
1: Staying for long hours, he'd arrive home, and before he'd put one foot in the door, and Joe would go, the bill's in the bar, or something, you know. Um, And I'd always, oh, he's only just gone home. But that happens with little kids. He gets stressed out and tired, and and he would always do it, or he'd
2: take them for a walk. That audio's a little hard to hear, but Tony Green's saying that her sister stressed out by looking after their young children, sometimes snapped at Benbow as soon as he got home from work. Suffice to say, there were two sides to the story of Joanna Green and David Benbow's breakup. When it finally happened, when Green moved out, as you heard before, she took her daughters and stayed with her parents, who lived nearby. After a couple of weeks, they shifted into a rental property close to a parent's place. It was about a week after this, so three weeks after she left Benbow, that Green said she started seeing McGrath. After the split, Benbow told friends he suspected something earlier, while he was at corrections officer training in Wellington before Christmas, and McGrath was building the deck at their new house. But in court, Green was clear. No overlap.
1: It was friends, and we respected each other, like I said, we could talk about anything. He would come around during that time just for tea and see the kids, because that was that was normal. And I, you know, I needed to thank him for like he helped me. Um, yeah, and then it grew from there. I'd always adored him and respected him, and now I had the chance to um, get the icing on the cake. If if that's that's what I'm saying, he was he, he was just such a good man. Yep, and the opportunity came along and I I asked him if he would um teach me how to be how to kiss and be touched. Yep. I trusted him that much, yep. He said, you know he said, You could be my soul mate. Who knows? Yep. And then he said I've he said I've fancied you for years, but we've never acted on it.
0: When he told you that he'd fancied
1: you for years, how did you feel? I knew that we both, I'll use the word fancy, but he was a good-looking man and he was very kind. And we just, we got on so well. um, Just wish he was still here.
2: Benbo finally had his suspicions about the relationship confirmed in late April. One of his daughters told him she had seen Mummy and Mike kissing. The next day, Benbow called Tony Green, Joanna's sister, upset and angry about what he now knew to be true. Tony also knew about Joanna and McGrath, but played it down on the phone. When she gave evidence about this, she told the court that she and Benbow had always got on pretty well, and she didn't want to hurt him. A week later, she went to see him. We've used actors to read this exchange between Tony Green and prosecutor Barnaby Hawes.
5: He looked terrible. He'd lost weight. He was very gaunt. He had this big bowl of boiled eggs on the bench. I remember that being quite odd. He was pleased to see me. I was pleased to see him. He was distraught. He was heartbroken. His behaviour was extremely odd. He went from um, being quite settled to um, sobbing, a bit of giggling and then sobbing, and
2: then anger. And did he tell you about what he was, what he was thinking? In a few seconds, Tony Green will tell Hawes about the kiss that Benbo's daughter saw. The girl has name suppression, which explains the bleep you're about to hear.
5: Um, he was distraught. He said that this was their forever home, and look at it. I looked outside. He said, look at the playhouse, and everything was set up for the kids. Um, and then he said to me about <laughs> telling him that she'd seen Joe and Michael kissing. And I played that down. I said, look, you know, we always hug each other when we see each other. Um, that's kind of a family thing. And I said, he's helped him move, you know. It's probably just a friendly cuddle. Hey, thanks. And then he said, oh, he's going around there for meals. And I said, well, that's the only way that Joe can thank people sometimes, you know.
0: Now, did he tell you about his view about what was going on between Michael and Joe?
5: Yes, he was ranting that it had gone on while he was away, which I said, no, there's nothing going on. And that um, Mike was his best mate and how he was shagging my sister. His ex-partner, and he was very angry about that.
2: The day after this conversation, May the second, 2017, David Benbow saw a counsellor. It was through the employee assistance program at his work. A lot of workplaces offer this sort of thing to support their staff. Benbow wanted to talk about his breakup with Green, and was offered the standard three sessions to begin with. He would have six all up. In that first session, he told the counsellor, whose name, remember, is suppressed, that he felt lost and lonely, he wasn't sleeping or eating properly, and that he felt, quote, shafted by what happened. Then, near the end of the session, he said something to the counsellor that would take on huge significance in this case. I want to annihilate him. Benbo was talking about Michael McGrath, who he just found out was seeing Joanna Green. This phrase would take on almost mythic status at the trial. It came up again and again. It was the very first thing Prosecutor Claire Beaucher said to the jury in her opening argument, and you heard her elaborate on it in the last episode.
0: Mr. Benbow betrayed his real feelings, the Crown says, when he told he would like to annihilate Mike. The Crown says he then made a plan to do just that, annihilate, wipe from the face of the earth.
2: Defence counsel Mark Corlett-KC made sure to address it in his reply. That is what we call a made-for-camera moment. Made for the media. Something said for no other reason than to get a headline. Well, you got us. Just about every media organisation covering the trial used this line, several in the headline. But this wasn't the only point Callit was trying to make here. The most important thing about the annihilate reference, he said, was the context. Context was everything. When Benbo told his counsellor he wanted to annihilate his ex-partner's new man, it wasn't a tacit admission of guilt from a murderer, Callit said, but a passing comment made by a man understandably upset at the breakdown of his family. The counsellor appeared as a witness at the trial. She has name suppression, and we've used an actor to reproduce her testimony here. The annihilate comment, she told the court, came during Benbo's first session with her, on May the 2nd. For ease of listening, we've also had an actor read the questions from Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes. Did he mention Mike?
6: Yes. I think that was nearer the end of the session. He just mentioned that he'd had a friend who he thought was starting to get a bit friendly with his ex-partner.
0: And what comment did he make about Mike?
6: He said that he'd like to annihilate him.
0: Now what did you make of that comment at the time?
6: At the time it didn't ring any alarm bells for me. It just seemed like one of those random comments that people make.
2: The counsellor said Benbow didn't mention Michael McGrath again until their sixth and final session on May the 25th, three days after McGrath disappeared.
6: I think that was the first thing Mr Benbow mentioned, that his friend Mike had gone missing and that the police had been round to see him because he may have been one of the last people to have seen him.
2: That was it. Two mentions in six counselling sessions. The councillor didn't give Benbo's comments another thought until a few nights later, when she was watching the news on TV. Again, actors are reading for the councillor and for prosecutor Barnaby Hawes.
6: I was sitting at the dining table and looked over and saw a photo on the TV and started listening and I was a wee bit shocked because I didn't realise that it was still an ongoing investigation. So when they mentioned Mr Benbow's name, I was, was a bit shocked actually. Why? Because I recognised that I'd seen him previously and that he was still a person of interest in an ongoing investigation.
2: The counsellor consulted her notes, which included the annihilate reference. After discussing the matter with her supervisor, they called the police. On the one hand, Benbo's comment perfectly captured a killer's motivation. His mate was seeing his ex-partner, essentially betraying him, so he had to die. But on the other, there was that context that Mark Corlett mentioned. People say things like this all the time. And the councillor readily admitted it wasn't a red flag when she heard Benbo say it. This is an exchange between the councillor and defence lawyer Kathy Passier. Again, because the councillor's name is suppressed, we've used actors.
4: You agree that no alarm bells rang when on the 2nd of May he mentioned Mike? Correct. He was upset and venting, and you would see that often in counselling sessions, wouldn't you? Yes. You're a member of the New Zealand Association of Counsellors, is that right? Yes. And as a member of the New Zealand Association of Counsellors, you adhere to a code of ethics. Is that correct? Yes. And one of the codes is a duty to warn. Counselors shall warn third parties and appropriate authorities in the event of imminent threat of serious harm to that third party from the client. Correct? Correct. And if you'd thought on the 2nd of May that there was any imminent threat of harm to anybody, you would have done something as per your obligations, wouldn't you? Yes, correct.
2: About a week after this first counselling session, David Benbow wrote Joanna Green a letter and delivered it by hand to the letterbox of her new rental property. It reads like a confessional, written by a man not used to talking about his feelings. Prosecutor Claire Bocher read it in court for the jury. These are excerpts with the names of the couple's daughters bleeped out because they're suppressed.
0: I look across the veranda to the playhouse. The family home built for you and the kids will shortly be someone else's. I should have been spending quality time with you, and Those two girls are the only positive thing in my life at the moment and I love them dearly. Joe, you have fantastic qualities and a great mother, I often thought but didn't acknowledge enough. Basically what I'm trying to say is I still love you and have lost someone very special. I'm not travelling too well at the moment, I see Dr. O'Gorman tomorrow for medical certificate, as we'll probably resign again to move in a positive direction, but no income. I apologise for the way things ended. All the best, Dave.
2: In the letter, Benbow also talked about how he'd lost weight, had no energy, and was taking antidepressants. He wrote about deconstructing his life and working out how to be a better man. All of this left Joanna Green deeply concerned. David Benbow was not a man given to introspection or taking medication.
1: The letter is, um, is not him. It's not it, it, he? Was appeared very low, and I was worried about him. I felt I should act and tell someone, tell some, well, make some provisions for the content of the letter. He was appeared very low. When you say it's not him. What do you mean? Just saying how he feels, like being on medication, because I've been on medication and he never um, was warm toward that or asked me how it was, but he's a letter saying that he's on it and you have to get help sometimes. So this, this is not him, he's, always, he's he's a very strong man. Um. So I, I took it that he was emotionally unwell.
2: Together, the evidence of his counsellor, the letter he'd written to Joanna Green and Green herself, showed David Benbow as a man deeply hurt by the breakdown of his relationship. He was alone, sitting in the home built for his family, without his family. He appeared lost and confused to his counsellor. He wasn't sleeping or eating properly, and he felt shafted by the new romance he'd just learned was going on between his mate and his ex. So, for the second time in two months, Joanna Green called the police about her ex-partner. This time, she wasn't calling about leaving a toxic relationship. This time, she told the court, she was calling because she was genuinely worried about David Benbo.
0: And were you in fact so concerned about him that you
1: contacted the police? Yes, I did, yes. What was the purpose of that? Just, I was concerned to go to an authority if, um, if they thought it was... Yeah, I was just concerned about him having the firearm.
2: Next, on The Trial. She just basically said
1: fucking liar
4: and then hung the phone up. The entire premise of the Crown case was flawed. Mr McGrath did not leave before nine, can't be in two places at the same time.
3: Well, as an expert, Senior Constable, the obligation on you is to provide impartial evidence.
2: You've been listening to The Trial, a Stuff podcast, it was scripted and produced by me, Michael Wright, from the Press newspaper. Sound design, audio editing and mixing was by Connor Scott. Thanks to Kamala Heyman and Martin Van Bainen. You can listen to the full series via Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow the show and leave a review. It helps other people find it. For more great true crime listening, go to stuff.co.nz podcasts.
4: This podcast took time to research and resources to produce, right here in Kiwiland. Support this work by making a contribution at stuff.co.nz support. A man disappears and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder, despite swearing she'd never even met him. Gone Fishing. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing.